You are listening to We Are Voices. We are voices. We are voices. We are voices. Series two of the kind place. When you go to reporting centers, you know, go through the security check and you go in, present your, your home office letter. The first thing that they will ask you is, do you want to go home? How can you be asking someone every time, do you want to go home? Do you not think if home was that safe, she wouldn't be here? If the home or the place that I call home was safe enough for me, I wouldn't be here. I will not be here. I think at the end of the day, it's like we are all jailed. The hard house that we got to was, it was really, really filthy. It's dignity taken from you, but it's done in the pretense of helping you. When it comes to the UK as a person seeking asylum, you have a right to be housed. But the accommodation system for asylum seekers often falls far short of our needs. In this episode, we'll be exploring that through my own and other people's experience. It was a leak in your ceiling. Yes. For over a year. Two years. For two years. Would water actually drip through? Water used to drip through. The number of people actually submitted asylum applications is historically quite low. The Home Office simply aren't making decisions fast enough on those asylum applications. Somebody is watching. They always say that we need to be thankful that you are being accommodated, you are being, like, you are being served the food. We're thankful, of course, we're always thankful. We are, we're, we're thankful, but at least treat us as a human being. I'll just give you a, a short intro about myself. My name is Safi. I'm a very shy and quiet person. I normally describe myself as a slow burner because I take my time to get to know people before I can get <laughs> into my groove. So yeah, that's that's me. A home is where somebody can be safe. It's somewhere I can find my safety or security. Somewhere I be able to sit and think like a normal human being. It's Monday night. I'm just chilling in my room and uh, just looking around and, you know, I can see early this hours of the morning very when it's all peace and quiet i'm just staring at the moon it's almost full it looks amazing i have like a really big vibe with the full moon it's coming the other day i said to my daughter oh i'm gonna cut my hair and she's like, Mommy, oh, why so would you cut today your hair? waking up you this morning spent so much money on wonderful it, sunshine. 
All I can do is give thanks to and I God fell asleep. for life. Um, <sighs> to binged, watched on a series. <laughs> the day that I get to take Katrina to be the dentist. Think that felt like really a normal old baby. Really Friday morning, 6.30. It's a lovely day today, but I'm still in bed. I have trouble sleeping anyway, so. And... Every housing officer has his or her own key to their apartment, which he or she is responsible for. So they at times come to the apartment. If they knock a couple of times, they'll come in like on their own because they have the key. For those that have gone through rape or gender violence or somebody just badges in a new like that how will someone feel like just wake up and see somebody in a room because we're human beings so treat us as one without any prior notice nothing they woke me up at 2 a.m. in the morning telling me that you need to pack your stuff because a cab driver is waiting for you downstairs for your other accommodation. I, w I was too, too frightened about the situation, like a cab driver at 2 a.m. taking me to another, uh, other accommodation. It doesn't make uh, sense for, for me to, to analyze this news. So I fought with them. But as you may know, like we are asylum seekers, we don't have any power, we're helpless. So all what I had to do is that to pack my things and go with the cab driver to see what will happen. This is Omar, who one of our producers, Zaini Jama, spoke to about his experience of the accommodation system on the condition that he remained anonymous. I don't have this confidence, this power to speak in public with my uh, my correct voice. I don't want my I don't want my asylum claim to be affected or any of my friends to be affected. We don't have these rights to talk to speak. During the road, we saw signs for two languages, and we didn't understand that it, it was Wales, and, and they have like two languages. We thought that they are going to move the guys near the borders of France or at the portion center. During the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and the lockdown restrictions, we were 50 plus inside the bus. No one was wearing a mask. No one was respecting social distancing. We arrived there in, in the middle of nowhere. Everything like around us, there was greens, except for a very small little village beside, beside the camp. All what you can see is that the metal gates with the security guys wearing vests, I don't know, bulletproof vests. So what, what's that for? Like we didn't have anything. We were not. We didn't come here to fight with you. 
we just like we just need to to know to understand where we are no one told us that we are in penali camp it was a shocking time and i i can't i can't explain it by words like you need to go there and feel what we felt we had this scary scary like scary feelings about the situation uh, we didn't see any person in, the, in that area we are in the middle of nowhere thinking about that we are being isolated from the outer world I'm John Thetonby. I'm the Policy Nancy Managers for Refugee Asylum at the British Red Cross. Penali Barracks was, was partly in response to the challenges that the Home Office were facing in not having enough accommodation available because they simply weren't making decisions on asylum claims quick enough. The Home Office had found themselves using an awful lot of hotels, but this was proven to be quite difficult for them and quite expensive. So instead, what they, they used was two former military barracks which were open to them because they would be cheaper than using hotels. And so they opened two of these um, in autumn 2020, one in Penali in South Wales and then also the Napier barracks in Kent. The average room in Penali, it was like you can say it was four or five meters by, by two, by two or three, uh, including uh, six beds because six people inside uh, were accommodated plus six closets and and these these beds were like separated by sheets thin sheets so that like you can't see the other guy when we wake up in the morning we woke up in the morning we just like you need you need to use the toilet like every human being but 99 percent of them they were unclean because like everyone is using the, these toilets. Then you need to wash your, uh, your face. There were uh, soap dispensers, but all, all the time they were empty. And then you need to queue in the line to get your breakfast. Then after you get your breakfast, you have nothing to do. So I will not say that it was dirty all the time. But every time it was cleaned, because someone from the home office or from a charity is visiting the camp, that's it. During my stay, I can say four times. Now these are barracks. These are places which a few years ago were being used to accommodate military personnel, usually for short periods of time, but hadn't necessarily been kept that well but the the view of the british red cross when they were first opened is that they were completely inappropriate for people who are who come to the uk to seek safety who are fleeing war violence and persecution because these are literally military barracks and particularly at someone like penali there was a live firing range not that far away from where people were being accommodated The, the first two, three days, it was a shocking, shocking feeling. I didn't like analyze it. It's still like, it's still the terrifying moments that I had from the uh, being on the bus, then going on the high roads with these signs, with the two languages, all of these thoughts, they came to my mind and they remind me with the flashbacks. 
from uh, from my home country then then I, I I was I was too terrified to sleep that the first night because I I was hundred percent sure that I'm gonna have nightmares. They never ever asked us if we want to go to the camp or not or give us a prior notice that we're going to the camp. They did everything in secret and they did everything in the middle of the night. Since the first day I came here to the UK, I felt like I'm powerless. I had I, I I I used to work with refugees in my home country from Syria, from Palestine, from Iraq, but we never we never treated refugees like this, like we're like the UK they are treating us. If if something happened to me, who's gonna like who's gonna be controlled? Who's gonna take the responsibility? From what I understand and from my own analyzing for the situation, if someone died in Napier, no one will take responsibility. They will just put the, them in grave and that's it done. This is this is the hostile environment that we're living in. It's sad when a society actually takes pride in using hostility as a good thing for migrants, for refugees, or for people who are fleeing from whatever it is that they're fleeing from. And that becomes an acceptable term. And it's used with so much ease, like it's a good thing to actually say, we have a hostile environment for people, for a human being. It really does question what the society is all about. This, this, this feeling of being unwelcomed, it will lead to, to, to many awful things. And we had we had some some incidents inside Penali of some people they were committed they want to commit suicide, but they were rescued at the at the at the last at the last moment. The number of people actually submitted asylum applications is historically quite low, and the reason why there are more people in accommodation than maybe there is capacity for is because the Home Office simply aren't making decisions fast enough on those asylum applications, which means people are in need of that accommodation for longer. The vast majority of people in the asylum system are now waiting for longer than six months, in many cases longer than a year, for an initial decision on their asylum claim, which then means they need accommodation for that much longer and means that more accommodation is needed. Um, I'm Annie, I'm an asylum seeker. Still waiting for the Home Office to um, dignify my, my claim of being in fear of my life and um, grant me the status to stay in the country. In the meantime, I'm here trying to decipher the maze of home office accommodation. In most cases, people come here with nowhere to go. You are taken to what is initial accommodation. Some people call it emergency accommodation. It's basically the first place that you, you are given shelter by the home office as a refugee or an asylum seeker. Some people were there for two weeks 
Some people were there for one year. Some people were there for six months. We were there for four months. So I'll speak of me and my journey. We were sent to a police station and we were there waiting until almost 9.30 at night. And we were waiting apparently for somebody to come and pick us up to get us to an accommodation. It was a social worker. And when that person showed up, he said he had made reservations for us for a room. And when he took us to the hotel that we were supposed to be, have been reserved for the room, they said that they had sold the room. And so we had nowhere to sleep. And he said to us, there's nothing much you can do. We would have to sleep um, in their offices because he was working overnight. That was the only place that he could offer us. And we slept on an office floor. Are they cancel office floors? <sighs> so, um, and he said we had to be up early because we were not supposed to be there. And then again, we were told to go back to the same police station for them to come and pick us up. And we again went back to the same police station, again waited. This time at least we got picked up about eight o'clock. So we were given pillowcases and bed sheets and sent to showed a room. The room had two bunk beds. So me and Katrina took one each and then there was a lady. Um I guess she was being dispersed because by the time we woke up at six in the morning she was gone. But the toilets were horrible. The smell was kept you awake. Katrina asked me for a bottle instead of going to the toilet. So the asylum accommodation system has found itself under quite a lot of pressure. And that's generally because there's a lack of suitable accommodation for people to be dispersed into so that, that accommodation around the country. So what that has resulted in is people being kept in that initial accommodation for longer than they should be. Um, at times for several months. And that accommodation really isn't set up to accommodate people for longer periods of time. What we've also seen over the last 18 months or so is an increased use of hotels to accommodate people. So rather than people being moved into housing um, where they might have their own room or even their own house if they've got a family, they're left in a, in a hotel room somewhere, probably without access to their own, their own kitchen or in many circumstances, their own private space. And we've supported people at the British Red Cross who have been in, in hotels now for several, several months, if not longer than a year in some circumstances. We were told we had to move from that house to another house. And the third house that we got to was really, uh, it was really, really filthy. That when they opened the door, the wolf just hit you. The house, the house had holes. The house had all the rubbish from the construction had been tucked under the staircase. And when we asked 
uh, we thought maybe maybe a rat died under there because we couldn't figure out where the smell was coming from. And they said, well, they'll, they'll, they were not going to pick up because that's that's how it was left. So I honestly had told my daughter, we're going to take a blanket and we're going to go and sleep in the reception. And I talked to somebody and they said to me, if you do that, they're going to use that as reason to say that you refuse the accommodation they've given you. So they're going to kick you out. So you're going to be homeless when your daughter. So it was keep up, put up or shut up. From there, we got moved to now this dispersal accommodation and have since been in the same house, hoping to stay in the same house until the cows come home. <laughs> yeah. If the Home Office then accepts that that person would otherwise be destitute, they wouldn't have anywhere else to live, that person is then accepted onto support and that's where they can then be moved into what's called dispersal accommodation. Now that means that they can be moved anywhere in the UK that takes part in that system on a no choice basis. So that person might be moved up to, for example, Glasgow or Liverpool or Leicester, but the people have no choice over where it is that they go. They are dispersed around the UK. We quite often see people living in very poor quality accommodation with issues with things such as damp. And when people do try to raise concerns about the accommodation they're in, quite often it takes an awful long time to get those things resolved. Wait, does any, is anyone in the three years you've been Look, here, has anyone ever done any maintenance? No, I've been here, I think it's two years. In August, next month, it'll be third year. Yeah, so it's been... Also, over two years. Yeah, over two years. To have the roof over your head is made like a leash where you are told like this, like now when somebody comes and says, oh, I'll write you up because I've questioned. And writing me up basically means that they can write me up for me to get kicked out of the house. So that person is actually telling you, you know, if you're not going to play ball, I have the the means to get you thrown out you you realize you're in this precarious position that is it's it's almost like you're in um in constant state of flight i want to forget but like I, I was moved outside Penali in early of December, and we're now in early beginning of May. Till now, I'm having these nightmares. Like, till now, till now, I never had this like deep, deep sleeping uh, to relax, to to feel relaxed. Till now, I'm I'm taking uh, like short naps during the daytime because of my uh, lack of sleeping uh, at at night. I just think that someone is knocking my, on my door. They will tell me that you, you're going to be moved in the middle of the night. If, if I woke up at the middle of the night, I, I just feel like, um, am I going to be moved to Napier? Because they, they already reopened Napier, so, and they, they already moved me to Penali. 
they may they may transfer me to Napier. They did it at the first and they can do it at the second and no one will ever stop them. Finale Barracks was closed when stopped using this final accommodation earlier this year. But Napier Barracks is a barracks in Kent continues to be used to house people seeking asylum. And at any one time, there might be, at the moment, somewhere between 70 and around 300 people there. The Home Office haven't indicated when they plan to stop using it, despite there being an awful lot of criticism for a number of different bodies of their continued use of it. Whenever you go to sleep, I always fear about having these nightmares regarding the situation, regarding the uncertainty of the future, regarding uh, being powerless. They always say that we need to be thankful that you are being accommodated, you are being, like, you are being served the food. We're thankful, of course, we're always thankful. We are, we're, we're thankful, but at least treat us as a human beings. We're human beings. Everyone here in the UK, they thought that, not everyone, sorry, I'm not going to say everyone. Most of the people here in the UK, they think that whenever we reach here, we're getting the profits from the taxpayers. We're not getting anything. We're just getting five pounds a day. And during our stay in Penal, we didn't get anything. We don't want your money. We just want you to contact your MPs, to contact the Home Office so that they can grant us the work permit. And you will see that we are going to work. We're going to do something in our life. We're going to pay taxes. We are willing to pay our taxes. We're not coming here to just survive on the five pounds a day. People should speak on behalf of us because we are helpless, we are powerless. And the UK residents, they have the power to talk. They have the power to be, uh, to say something and we will be thankful for, for such thing. What would I define a home? A home is safety. A home is... is a sanctuary. A home is... is a reflection of you. So... this to me here is not a home. It's a roof over my head because it's not where you feel safe. People tick boxes. And for us, this is a ticked box somewhere in some paper somewhere. Is this a boiler at home? It doesn't matter if it's rubbish because it's an asylum seeker's house with the constant fear of it being taken away from you so it's not peace you know when you are in this asylum process it seems as if you're in prison you know you do you anything that comes up your mind that you think this I 
I can tell them this. I can ask. I should ask them this. I should ask them that. But you're scared. You don't even feel like you have a right to say when or when you are being maltreated. You don't even have the courage to say you're hurting me or you you know that feeling when somebody's hurting you and you you don't even have the courage to open your mouth and say you're hurting me. That is how you feel. The episode was produced by me, Safi, with contributions from Annie and additional production by Zaina Jamal. Our senior producers are Bridie Addison Child and Jude Sapiro. We Are Voices is made up by the Voices Network in collaboration with the British Red Cross and supported by players of People's Postcode Lottery. Bridie Addison Child and Jude Shapiro. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with me today? No, I'll do it this time around. <laughs> the Voices Network is an independent organisation that shares the voices and personal views of refugees and asylum seekers. We believe that every refugee matters. If you do too, join us and stand up to say we need a kinder and more compassionate way to support refugees. Visit everyrefugeematters.redcross.org.uk to pledge your support. Mm-hmm.